Turn please to Mark in chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, I want to read beginning with verse 1 through verse 12. Mark 10, 1 through 12, please. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and, and we have already said that everything in our lives depends upon you working through this means of grace to change our lives. So we pray that this word would be that for us, your grace that comes and heals and empowers and strengthens and encourages and gives life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. When Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and came across the Jordan, again crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits Adultery. Now, if I were going to teach a whole seminar on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, this is one of the passages to which I would turn, but it's only one of the passages to which I would turn. That is to say that it doesn't tell me everything, answer every question I would have about this particular, particular subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage. But clearly, it's about that, at least in some measure, Jesus finds himself being asked this particular question by these particular Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But, before we get into that whole thing, let me say a couple of things. First of all, this obviously is a very sensitive issue, a very sensitive subject in the hearts and minds of people. There are some people who are single who hate any discussion of marriage because of the difficulty in which they find themselves not wanting to be single but rather wanting to be married and so they'd just as soon not hear a sermon about marriage, divorce or anything else related to that subject. There are those who are married who find themselves in very difficult marriages. While they may not make the exact statement to say, I wish I were single, they certainly would like their marriage to be quite different. And so it can be a difficult subject. There are those who have gone through difficult divorces. And when they hear a passage like this, even though their conscience may be clear, it still may bring back difficult memories and sorrows and even a measure of guilt, whether it should or whether it shouldn't. There are those who find themselves convicted by such passages. That, by the way, is good if it's real conviction but still difficult as well. Others have been quite marred and hurt by divorce. So there's a number of things that can hit you at that level. I preached 
an introductory sermon a couple of years ago to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which deals a number of, with a number of those issues. And so we've made available some of that sermon. I gave this to you a couple of years ago if you were in such a situation, and so that may be helpful to you. There are some out there, if you don't have one, if that would be helpful for you, just to, 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 to think about how it is that you can hear sermons on marriage, divorce, and remarriage when it's been such a difficulty, if it's been such a difficulty in your own life. So you can pick that up. The second thing I want to deal with is, is just a, a, a very obvious thing. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. In verse 31. Well, you stick your finger there and read it later, but turn to Matthew 19. Might as well deal with the exact cross-reference. It's the same deal, but... Um, Matthew 19. In verse 8. And the reason I do this is just because Mark... Uh, doesn't include something in this particular uh, situation that, that, that Matthew includes. For instance, in Matthew 19, verse 8, and this is the, essentially the same situation, uh, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And so the question is, why is it that Mark left this out and Matthew included it? And the answer, of course, is we don't quite know. There's no footnote where Mark says, by the way, Matthew's going to put this in, but I'm not, and here's why. So we can only speculate as to why. Certainly that exception, except for marital unfaithfulness, is true because Jesus spoke it. And if he spoke it once, it's true. Not only once, but for all time. But somehow Mark didn't think that was as important to include in all the other words he included here. He included a couple of things that Matthew didn't include. Like we were created by God, male and female, but... Matthew includes a couple of things that Mark didn't include. And, and again, we're not quite sure exactly why, except each gospel writer has his own heart, his own agenda. God is working through that in the midst of that, and he's putting out what he thinks is relevant, important for the point he's trying to make. Most likely, it's that everyone would have agreed with Jesus at that point that marital unfaithfulness is a rationale for Divorce, that one is permitted, not required, not commanded, it's not mandatory. But since in the Old Testament law, adultery, marital unfaithfulness in its extreme, adultery was a capital offense, that is, if your spouse committed adultery, they could be put to death, then in the days of the New Testament, when the Jews were unable to practice their law, and to put people to death. They didn't have that authority under the Roman rule and so forth. That it was understood that marital unfaithfulness was grounds for divorce. Thus, for remarried, thus if your spouse committed adultery and you were divorced and you remarried, you wouldn't be living in adultery at that particular point in time. That's why Jesus includes except for marital unfaithfulness. Mark doesn't include it, most likely because it was well understood. That would be our best Guess. So, there you have that. But what I want to now say is that this passage really isn't primarily about that anyway. That is to say, you've got to understand other things before you can get to uh, the point that Jesus is trying to make. Because it isn't that simply Jesus is against divorce. He's for marriage. And that's the whole problem, you see, with the Pharisees in the first place. Their first problem is that they're against Jesus. 
They're against Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. And anyone who's against Jesus really doesn't want to follow God. Because you see, to be against Jesus is to be against God because Jesus is God in the flesh. When people say they believe in God and yet do not believe in the deity of Christ, do you understand they don't believe in God? They believe in a God of their own construction. They believe in a God of their own making. They believe in God as they understand Him. Right? But they don't believe in God. Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you reject Jesus, do you understand? You don't believe in God, no matter what you say. Are you with me? Is that all right to say? You understand that whole concept. Okay. So when people casually say they believe in God, you really don't know if they believe in God, God, or just God. Big G, little g, one they've made, or the real one. And so, in rejecting Jesus, so they come to test Jesus. They don't really want to follow Jesus. They come to test Jesus, the scripture says, with this particular, with this particular question. And that little word test in Greek is really the little, is really the word tempt. And so, this is exactly the same word that was used when Satan came to tempt Jesus, as we understand his temptations in the wilderness. And you know, Satan's design, his hope, was that he could keep Jesus from the cross, that in some way he could discredit Jesus, some way he could get Jesus to sin, some way he could get Jesus to turn his back on what he had come for, and therefore Satan, in that sense, would get the victory. And so, when these Pharisees come to tempt Jesus, they're really working on behalf of Satan. They want Jesus to be discredited. And so they bring up this highly controversial subject. And it was highly controversial for a couple of reasons. One was because, you remember, John the Baptist had lost his head over this issue. Because Herod had married Herodias, and Herodias had been divorced. Herodias had been divorced from, actually, Herod's brother, but you remember that was a whole other strange situation. And John the Baptist was ultimately killed for his view on that issue when he criticized Herod about that. And so now they're putting Jesus in quite a similar situation. And it just so happens that Jesus had crossed over into Herod's territory at this particular point in time. So if he gave an answer that was displeasing to Herod, which everyone assumed he would, they assumed he would be on the same page as John the Baptist, then perhaps he would lose his head as well. Herod would have him arrested and kill him, and that would be that. And so this test, you see, is very significant. But not only that, there was a great debate in Judaism at this time as to really what constituted uh, grounds for the divorce. And it came out of a passage in Deuteronomy in chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Turn there very quickly just so that you can make sure I'm telling you the truth. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Moses writes, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her off from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. 
That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now notice this particular situation. It's something, goes something like this, all right? If Sally marries Bob, and Bob decides there's something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And they're divorced. And then Sally goes and marries Frank. Then Frank finds something he does displeasing and, or dies. That's always been what I rooted for in this particular situation. Uh, uh, and he writes for her a certificate of divorce. Then what Moses is saying, for some reason, and it eludes us a little bit, although I think we can see some point here if we could read through it. Um, for some reason, then Sally can't go back and marry Bob. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. And you say, well, why? Well, we don't know exactly why, but it certainly is great protection for this woman, for Sally. Because, you see, indiscriminately, Bob just can't just say, get out of here. At least he has to have some reason and give her a piece of paper to say that she's free from him. And so the people won't know that she just is, is out sleeping around, that she actually is divorced from from Bob, and then and then it's it's a safeguard for her because it keeps her from getting back in the same situation she was in with Bob in the first place. So it doesn't work out with Frank, so she can't go back to him and live back through that again. So it's protection, if you will, upon her, and it tells us that there's something very significant about marriage. But what the Pharisees were hung up on wasn't any of that. It was all right. What does this mean? This little phrase that we have translated in the NIV something indecent about her. What, what does that mean? What's, what's the least it can mean so that a man can actually divorce his wife? You see, the Pharisees' attitude wasn't so much that they were for marriage at this point. It was that they were for divorce. And they wanted to figure out how we could make this really happen. It'd be sort of like going in and taking a bank loan, leaving and saying someone and asking someone, now, how can I keep from paying this? Give me one good way. And so they say, okay, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus goes back to this account in Deuteronomy 24. What did Moses say? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. All of that implied, what does this, what does this thing mean? Something indecent about her? And as you might imagine, there were at least two schools of thought on that issue. One very conservative and one very liberal. The liberal-minded Pharisees would argue that almost anything accounted for something indecent about her. That, in fact, you could read the rabbi's discussions on these matters. It was all the way from, you know, simply it wasn't working out, to even something, she embarrassed me in public, to even she burned my toast, to even I found another woman who attracted me more. Thus, it's her fault, of course. There was something indecent about her. She wasn't attractive enough. And so the very liberal ones would say, well, really, almost anything, pretty much. But then, of course, there were the conservative ones who said, he said, it has to be something very, very serious. Short of really adultery, because it wouldn't be necessary, necessary to divorce her for adultery. If she committed adultery, you could simply take her down, and she could be executed in Old Testament Israel for adultery. So you wouldn't really need to have a divorce situation. So something short of that, but it would have to be something very significant, and almost something sexual, almost something related to a sexual immorality charge. 
So they come to Jesus, okay, uh, cut through this for us, Jesus. Tell us which side you're on. And, and no matter what he said, then he'd have enemies on one side or the other, and a great controversy would develop. But of course, Jesus, being Jesus, was able to cut right to the heart of the matter. And he said, you know, the only reason that that existed, even in the Old Covenant, even in the Old Testament, wasn't because there was God's original design, but it was because divorce was happening. And Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, because you couldn't stay married, because of the hardness of your hearts, gave away, to, uh, made away, so that this could be regulated, it could be handled, and, and, and divorce just wouldn't be out of control. So he said, you've got to offer, you've got to give a certificate of divorce. It's got to be regulated. But Jesus says, that's not the point anyway. We shouldn't be developing an understanding of marriage and divorce and remarriage and all of that based on the hardness of your heart. What we should be basing it on is God's design. And so he says then in verse 6, he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So turn back quickly to Genesis in chapter 1. And verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves uh, on the ground. In verse 31, God saw that all he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in the sixth day of creation, God creates in his own image, male and female, he creates them. The goal, the purpose of the man and the woman were to image God, were to reflect Him. We can even say to glorify Him. When you look into a mirror, you see your own reflection. You see your own glory. And we are in some sense to be that reflection, that glory of God. People are to see in us God. That's our purpose. That's our goal, to live to glorify Him. If we live to glorify anyone else, that's idolatry. That's sin. Because he's God. We live to show forth him and who he is. That's, that's why at the offering time I said we're to be givers because God is a giver and we glorify him. And so we glorify, we reflect God in a number of different ways to being fruitful and multiply. There's a certain creativeness to us, not in the same sense that God is the creator because God creates everything out of himself uh, really, um, we create from what God has created. We make out of what God has given to us. So it's not creation in the purest sense. It's like that old story about the scientists who finally uh, were able to clone a human being. And after cloning a human being, they decided that God was no longer necessary. So at their scientific invention, they elected three scientists to go meet with God and tell him he was no longer necessary since now they could clone a human being. So they went to God and they met with him and they said, you're no longer necessary. We can do this on our own. Thank you very much. God said, hmm, just one final experiment. Let's go back to the way it was in the beginning 
and creates as I did back then. The scientists said, that's no problem, we can do that. So they leaned over and they picked up some dirt and God said, no, 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 no. Get your own dirt. See, 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 that's the difference. That's the difference. God didn't start with the dirt. He, he made uh, the dirt, the dust, and then us. We always are creating from that which is really available. We don't make anything that isn't God did. He's created. But, but we image him in some sense in our productivity, in our creative process. That's what we're, we're to do uh, as we have children even. Uh, he said we're to, we're to have dominion over the earth. We're to rule over the earth as he rules. Obviously, we're not the sovereign ruler, but we rule under him. And we're to rule in a way that reflects him. Our ruling is to be righteous because his ruling is righteous. And we're to rule as he instructs. We're to rule as he rules. Not sovereignly, but under him. And so we reflect him. We, and we're also to love, of course, because there's a social element to reflecting God's image, to glorifying Him, because God is love. And the Puritans had a great saying about God. They said, God is in Himself a happy society. Meaning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That together, there was a mutual love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one for the other, making God in Himself a community. That could be one of the reasons why in Genesis 1.26 we have the phrase, then God said, let us make man in our own image. A reflection of this community who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also the bigness of who God is, unable to be captured simply in the singular, but the superlative of a plural. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In God is a happy society. So the Father loves the Son. When the Father sends the Son to die on the cross and you sense the grief in that, that's the loving grief of a loving Father. When Jesus is baptized and when Jesus is about to go to the cross and God said, this is my Son whom I love. And the, father, and the Son loves his Father. And thus, he lives to glorify him. He he allows himself to be sent. He volunteers for this mission and he comes to die for the Father's glory so that his Father is esteemed because he loves his Father. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son and thus he brings their very presence to us and he glorifies them. He loves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and God's love then, of course, is poured out upon us and so then God calls us to love each other. So in the beginning, Jesus says... God created us, and God created us in His image to reflect Him. And thus you see, marriage is to reflect God. Go over that in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 2, we have a more detailed creation account, especially concerning human beings. Genesis 1 flies us through a, a, the creation account from beginning to end, and then Genesis 2 begins to concentrate on human beings as opposed to all the other things. And so we get more detail about the creation of Adam and Eve than we did in chapter 1. So now if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord, God, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So he makes Adam, and then he notices it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So first Adam, then in verse 19. 
Now the Lord had, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But, no, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In other words, God said, it's not good for him to be alone. So let's see what we've got here. And so then Adam was charged with naming all the animals that came before, before him. And he didn't name any of them anything related to man, anything related to mankind, anything related to anything like him. He said, nope, that's a giraffe. Nice neck, but... Mm. You know, that's a monkey. A lot of energy, but not into the tree thing. You know, I don't like trees. Whatever. No suitable helper for Adam was found. Then we read on. So, verse 21. The Lord God caused the man, that is Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. That is, she's like me. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is a suitable helper for me, she came from me, she's like me, we fit, we're together. When I was studying Hebrew, it was always easy to remember uh, the word for woman because the word for man was ish, and the word for woman was isha. And so I often thought if Adam were speaking Hebrew, he would look at Eve as she came forth and say, ish, ah, this is something about her. It was just nice, different. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, yes, this is my suitable helper. Verse 24, for this reason, for what reason? For the reason that God had made for man a suitable helper. For that reason then, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You see, for the reason that God had made this woman for this man was, was the very cause, the very rationale, the very logic that a point in time would come in a, in a, in a young man's life, in a man's life, when he would leave his, 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 his family of origin and strike out with a woman and create his own, if you will, family. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here we have the institution of marriage, and here we have the ethic of marriage, and here we learn something about the nature of marriage right in this verse. And that's Jesus' point. That's going to lead him to his conclusion. He said, let's start not with the hardness of your hearts, but let's start with the intention of God. He instituted marriage so that marriage could reflect him, so that he would have this man and woman who would love each other. And that love for each other would in some way reflect the very love of God and love that comes from God and expressed by Him and is true of Him. That a man would leave his father and mother. And we see the ethic of marriage. That is why we say marriage can only take place between a man and a woman. And why marriage can only take place between a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship. So we don't believe that marriage is between two men or between two women. That goes against the institution and the ethic which God has made. We're against domestic partnerships 
that include two, three, four, five, eight people. Because that isn't marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the way God designed it, and that's the way we're to image him in the context of marriage, and that only. Now, I say that not judgmentally against anyone who would disagree with that particular assessment, but simply that that's the way that God has designed it. Thus, as those who follow him, we follow this design. I probably wouldn't have come up with this. But God did. And so this is what we follow. And that, of course, is Jesus' point always with the Pharisees. Always with the Pharisees is you never want to go God's way. You're always trying to pick around the edges and not really follow God truthfully. So we would say to them, you don't know God nor his power. You don't know his word nor the power of God. Because they never really were willing to sink their teeth deep into God and to follow after him. And so Jesus goes back to the beginning and he sets up the institution and now the ethic of marriage. But also we learn about the nature of marriage here as well. Because there's a cleaving that goes on in marriage. There's a leaving of your family of origin to strike out and to create a new identity between the two of you, husband and wife. And there's this cleaving. And and, and the word in Hebrew is a word for adhesive. If they had the the, the product in Moses' day, he would have said that a man should leave his father and mother and be super glued to his wife. To be adhered together. And so Jesus then, when he's talking to the Pharisees, says, uh, well, let me, before I get to that, they should be glued together and the two will then become one flesh, one identity. And that isn't just a reference to sexual intimacy. That's a, that's a reference to their very lives. They're adhered together. It's no longer me, but we. It's now I have a whole other being to whom I'm attached, and not simply attached like this, but attached like this, so that we're mingled together, so that when one speaks out, we both speak out, when one feels, we both feel, when, when one uh, decides, we both decide. It's that sort of thing. But you see, that image is God, doesn't it? It images God to the degree that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three, yet one. Three persons, yet, yet one. We would say one flesh if that were real, but that doesn't seem to fit it. So simply one, three persons, one. So Jesus could honestly say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is to say, I'm so, we're so one that when I speak, it's as if he's speaking. When I'm here, it's as if he's here. When you see me, it's as if you're seeing him because we're one. Yes, two persons, but yet one still had unity together. And that is an eternal and everlasting with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bond that can never be separated at all. It would be utterly unthinkable. It would be utterly unthinkable for the Son to see himself separated from his Father, from the Spirit to see himself separated from the Son, from the Father to see himself separated, divided in some sense from himself, from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's joined together. And so Jesus therefore says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That is to say, that's what marriage is. So before we talk about whether it's lawful to, to divorce, let's talk about what happens in the context of marriage. Always, 
If you've been to one of the weddings I officiate, always I say somewhere, whatever text I choose for my married sermon, I always say the same stuff, but I, I always say, something is happening today. God is joining you, that is this couple, God is joining you together to be husband and wife. When you walked into this place, you were not husband and wife. When you leave, you will be. That's Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that in marriage, something happens. It isn't just a silly ritual that we go through. It isn't just a couple of pieces of paper that we sign. It's not just a big party that we have. It's something happens in heaven. In the very throne of heaven that God joins together, you see. And so Jesus says, all right, now, understanding that, think with me about your question. Is it lawful to div- for a man to divorce his wife? And again, if you could just separate yourself for a moment from whatever damage has taken place in your life because of divorce or marriage or any of that, and just think with Jesus for a minute, if you can possibly do that. Really, the answer to Jesus' question, if somebody comes and says, after all of that, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus is thinking, how could it be? How could it be if you're following after God? How could it be that anyone could, under, could, could separate such a thing? You've seen the experiment probably at marriage conferences. They do this all the time. I was going to do it today, but it's messy. And, and you've probably seen this. And that is you take two pieces of paper, usually two different colors. Red and blue, let's say. And you paste on the side of one of them, and then you stick them together. Make sure they're really stuck together. And then you try to pull them apart. You know what happens. It's a mess. You pull them apart, and there's a little bit of blue and a little bit of red stuck to each one, because you can't really pull them apart. They've really been adhered together. So Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, you can't really rip these two things apart. Because the real purpose of this coming together is to reflect God. And God is one. And God is faithful. And God is permanently loving. And so when God loves, he loves. God never goes back on his love. And therefore, since God's love is permanent, your love must be permanent in marriage. How could you ever think Otherwise, we read the Ephesians passage. I'm running late, but that's okay. Uh, Ephesians 5. Do you like how I confess it and give myself approval? Just declare it okay. (laughs) And you pay me to do that. That's good. Ephesians 5. (laughs) I appreciate that. Verse 2. I'm working overtime. I, you know. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourself, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands have to love their wives uh, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ loves the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You get this sense that Paul is now combining, in some sense, this relationship between us and Christ, and the love that he has for us, and this relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And thus you're seeing this imaging, you're seeing this reflection, you're seeing that the glory of God is to be manifested in our marriages, in the marriages between a a husband and a wife. You see how it is that this man is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. That's a reflection. That's an imaging. What defines love in the context of marriage? What defines love in the context of marriage is the love that Christ has for us. And then Paul comes clean in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm thinking it's a profound mystery for a man and a woman to become one flesh. And Paul would say, yeah, 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 yeah. But here's the real profound mystery. Here's the thing that should captivate you for the rest of your life. Here's the thing that should be on your mind. I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm talking about the profound mystery of how God, through Christ, loves us. And how God, through Christ, has joined us with Him. How God, through Christ, has made us to be His bride. That's the profound mystery. Oh, it's pretty significant about this husband and wife thing. But now you're to live to glorify what Christ has done. And you see, what Christ has done in his love for us is to choose us before the foundations of the world. What Christ has done in his love for us is to die for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have security in Him because we know that our relationship with Him is not based on our earning His love, but based on the very fact that He loves. And not based on the fact that He loves in general, that is, that He loves the whole world, but He loves me. He loves you. He loves His church. It says that He gave Himself for her for the church. Yes, there's this general sense of the love of Christ. There's this general sense of the love of God. But there's this particular work of Christ on the cross where he gave himself for those he loved with his special saving love. And so then he turns to husbands and wives and he says, love like that. Don't love the other because they're attractive. Don't love the other even because they're alive in some sense, if you can follow the imagery. But love them because you're a lover. It isn't that they love you. Love them because you love them. Love them because you've chosen them. Love them because you're going to give yourself for them. That's the way Christ is. So love in that way. Their security isn't in their behavior. Their security isn't in their look. Their security isn't what they have. Their security is in the fact that you love them. And then that, you see, images God. Now, Jesus comes, therefore, to tell them it's as unthinkable for a man to divorce his wife as it would be for God to stop loving you. 
And you say, but I'm not God. I know that. I'm not either. And you say, there, there is that exception caused by Jesus. I know that. It is true that sin messes everything up. There's no question about that. And there are certain sins that mess it up so bad, like marital unfaithfulness, that it may be a divorce for at least the victim is permitted and remarriage all right. And even Paul speaks of a situation where a believer finds himself or herself married to an unbeliever and that unbelieving spouse doesn't want to be married anymore and deserts the relationship. Paul says, all right, you're free in that case. I understand that sin messes it all up. But Jesus would say, but, but that's not who you are now if you're a believer in Christ. You are now as a believer in Christ as a disciple of mine. You are now as a believer in Christ. You're, you're not walking around saying, give me all the reasons why I could divorce my spouse. You as a believer in Christ are walking around saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. How was it from the beginning? What's God's intention? And Jesus is saying, you're glued. You're together. Thus, how could you even think, how could you even think of tearing apart now? What you now know, maybe you didn't know it yesterday, but let's go with today. What you now know, God put together. And you understand that your whole life now is to live to reflect me. And Jesus says, just in the same way that you and I are glued together and I won't drop you, that nothing can separate you from my love. Now I want you to live that out. I want to live that out with, yes, your husband. I want you to live that out with, yes, your wife. Because you see, the biggest tragedy in divorce isn't all of the hurts and pains that everybody feels and you do. It's the fact that we've misled people about the love of God. That we haven't reflected him as we should. But the great blessing of being married and being around those who are really married isn't just the happiness that you feel by being married to people because those of us who are married, except for me, might say from time to time marriage isn't all the greatest thing in the world. I, of course, would never say that because, well, you know. <laughs> but even still, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of sorrow, there is always this sense of the joy of God that says, I'm reflecting him as I love, even in the midst of this trying time. And the night Jesus was betrayed, he was to teach all of that. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup and this too he gave to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me and one of the things we think of one of the things we remember is that this was in some sense how it is that we became the bride of Christ that he so loved us 
that he gave himself for us. And now we remember that and we think, that's a permanent covenant. I belong to him. He loves me. And now he says to husbands and wives, love like that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for filling us. Thank you for living in us. Thanks for this wonderful supper. And we now pray that you'd set aside this bread and this juice in a way that enables us really to think upon Christ, to focus our attention upon him, and to understand what he's done. And even in the midst of this supper, I pray too, Father, you'd forgive sins. I'm sure we all can list sins those who are single can, can, can list sins even though they're not married in the context of your institution and ethic of marriage. Those who are married can list sins in the context. There are some perhaps who've sinned grievously as they even have admitted and would admit. But yet we know there's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And we know that this shows us that as we meet Jesus in this supper, our sins we should have assurance of great forgiveness of all of our sins. And so I pray that that would be true, Father. But even more than that, I pray that from this supper on, from this moment on, that we would be those who walk in love as Christ has loved. So use this profound mystery that our faith may be increased and our lives may be made more holy. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And thus I invite to it all those who understand themselves rightly, and that is to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except, without hope except in his sovereign mercy, and that you receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, and in no one and nothing else, and that your heart's desire, though you know you will fail, but your heart's desire is to live a life that's pleasing to him. So let me invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and, and as you're contemplating, as you're going back before you eat it, or perhaps even as it's in your mouth, be thinking this.